This week's podcast is sponsored by Salesforce.org. Salesforce.org is the dedicated team at Salesforce that delivers technology to non-profits, educational institutions and philanthropic organisations so they can connect with others and do more good. Salesforce.org empowers higher education with its Education Cloud, a set of integrated solutions built on the world's number one CRM. In today's fast-moving world, leveraging technology is essential to deliver the personalised, proactive and continuous experiences each student expects. But how can institutions embrace digital transformation and how can they leverage technology to improve the student experience, achieve operational excellence and strengthen their relationships with the community they serve? With a desire to help the community find answers to these questions, Salesforce.org launched the Higher Ed Summit in the US eight years ago and has gathered thousands of higher ed professionals to share insights and connect with peers annually ever since. To better serve their growing community of education trailblazers in Europe, the team has launched a regional summit called the Higher Ed Summit Horizons. And this year, Salesforce.org invites every higher ed professional and institution leader to join the ranks in Paris on the 10th of October and be inspired by pioneers in higher ed digital transformation. From building brand awareness, transforming the applicant experience, enhancing student services, building lifelong alumni relationships, or managing change and optimising technology across the campus, you'll hear from pioneers who have paved the way for the future of higher education and have driven all kinds of innovations at their institutions. The EdTech podcast will be at the event, moderating a panel discussion and conducting interviews with those shaping higher education. Come and join us and have a chat. Register today at sfdc.co forward slash horizons 2019 using our special code edtech50 to get 50% off your ticket. Not only will you get a chance to connect with professionals like yourself who are transforming learning, but you'll also hear from Graham Brown Martin, author and broadcaster of Learning Reimagined and founder of Learning Without Frontiers. Again, registration is at sfdc.co forward slash horizons 2019 using the special code edtech50 to get 50% off the ticket. And all details are available via our show notes for this episode at the edtechpodcast.com. Okay, let's go. and welcome to the EdTech Podcast. As I record this, we're slap bang in the middle of the summer holidays here in the UK. As is traditional, we are enjoying a severe weather warning, which basically means it's a little bit blowy and raining slightly. How is it where you are? And what did you think of our new podcast series trailer? Tweet us where you're listening from and what you're doing at Podcast EdTech. Some very sad news as I record the introduction to this episode. I was shocked and saddened to open one of my favourite newsletters, Doug Belshaw's Thought Shrapnel, and to read about the passing of Di Barnes. Di was the head of digital strategy at a UK school, and Di and Doug co-hosted the Tide podcast. I didn't have the pleasure of meeting Di, but the Tide podcast was introduced to me in the early days of the EdTech podcast by Joe Dale and Stefan Kasper both previous guests. Dai's passing is obviously a huge loss, both to his friends and family, but also within the education podcasting community, 
and I can only imagine what it's like to lose a co-host, someone you collaborate with and share all your thoughts with. Di Barnes was a big enthusiast for barefoot running, and I encourage you all to go and look up the hashtag BarefootForDai, D-A-I, which shows all of Di's friends and followers showing themselves walking in various places around the globe barefoot to remember him and the impact he had on them. Our thoughts are with Doug Belshaw and with Di's family and friends. A few other announcements. If you're on the tech side of things or maybe a teacherpreneur looking to start your business, Lucy Lynn Matten from Emerge Education got in touch as she has built a tool for current or future fundraisers featuring a database of all VCs that have invested in European edtech since 2010. And apparently there are over 500. The link to access the tool is available within our show notes at theedtechpodcast.com forward slash edtechpodcast. If you're interested in events, keep listening until our outro where we also list what's coming up and how you can track upcoming events in our calendar. Right, this week's episode. Another peek into the world of higher education, but with lots of transferable skills, whatever education hat you might be wearing. We throw back to a recording at Future EdTech where I ask a live panel how to develop the team who will deliver change. And we think about this within institutional capability and leadership development for the 21st century university. You'll hear from me, Debbie Holly, who's Professor of Learning Innovation and the head for the Centre for Excellence in Learning at Bournemouth University. Chris Cobb, who is Pro Vice-Chancellor and Deputy Chief Executive of the University of London. Wendy Purcell, Professor of the TH Chan School of Public Health at Harvard University. Jane Armstrong, a Senior Director within the Higher Education part of Salesforce.org. And Andrew Turner, the Associate Pro Vice-Chancellor for Teaching and Learning at Coventry University. We talk about... Why doing nothing is embracing the status quo, whether it's okay to say I don't do tech, and why downloading board papers digitally shouldn't be beyond the university SLT. We also think about value and why there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to university. I especially enjoyed listening back to this recording as I come to the end of reading the book Econocracy, which I'd encourage you all to check out if you're interested in the tussle between liberal education and university as a bridge to work. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Send us a picture of where you're listening in via at Podcast EdTech on Twitter or Instagram and have a great week. Well, um, hello and uh, welcome everyone again to day two of Future EdTech. The first part of uh, creating change is having a seat at the table, so well done for turning up and uh, you guys are obviously the early adopters uh, this morning. Um, Yesterday I met people who travelled from um, countries including Holland, Dubai, Bahrain, the USA. Um, So a big welcome to uh, anyone who's travelled from further afield Um, And I even managed to meet one of those listeners um, from Australia, so that was pretty amazing. Yes, just to uh, remind everyone, the hashtag is Future EdTech. Um, And I just jotted down a few of the takeaways from yesterday. So 
Uh, there's four of these. So the, number one is there was obviously quite a division still, uh, it seemed, between uh, SLT strategy or senior leadership team strategy in the universities and perhaps faculty implementation. Um, it struck me that the personality mix on your change team can make or break a program. So that's quite uh, an interesting idea that, you know, the right people in the, the uh, right place at the right time, uh, it's that strange alchemy that can make things happen. Um, there are a diversity of university models. So I know yesterday people were quite aghast at those that tied industry and employability um, can perhaps uh, go against some of what we think sometimes. But then I also thought, well, for those people who've been less well served by the, the traditional university model, um, you know, that idea of making every penny count and getting a job at the end is actually really very important for them. So, you know, there's a diversity of university models and each one is valid. Um, and finally, everyone seemed to agree that where there is finally consensus to change, um, there needs to be less bureaucracy and red tape to actually getting that done. So it made me think, you know, perhaps is that an area where edtech could actually assist in making that more uh, efficient? Um, but this morning we're here to talk about developing the team who will deliver change. And I think for those of you who are passionate about actually getting stuff done in the universities, um, this hopefully should be a, a really exciting um, panel. Um, so my first question to the panel, which are the capabilities needed to create and sustain a 21st century university? And perhaps I'll jump to... Andrew, uh, for that one, because we had a, a, an interesting chat this morning about, you know, agility and mm. um, perhaps how that might work in a university. So. Yeah, it's a tricky one. I think um, for me, I think for a university, it's having an entrepreneurial mindset um, for the university at probably every level of the university and trying to embed that throughout the university. <laughs> and, and by what I mean by that, it's... I think if you look at risk at the moment and you look at the uncertainty in, in education, the risk is not doing anything. Um, so actually, I think it is about responding to change. And I think an entrepreneurial mindset means really, as a university, you're always looking for opportunities. You're aware of what's going on. And we talk at Coventry about the Coventry way, and that's about partnership. And I think forming partnerships with business, forming partnerships at every level of the institution is really important. Um, Heidi from the University of York yesterday talked about the standoff between academics and professional staff. And I think at the lowest level where we're delivering, you know, right at the heart of things where we're delivering courses, one of the things that I think is really important is a partnership between academic and professional services staff. You have to work together. And that goes for every level of the organisation, from the very top team all right down to the course teams where you've got those partnerships coming together and then partnerships beyond the university as well. So I think that entrepreneurial mindset, being able to lead in an entrepreneurial way in an institution is, is really important um, for change, looking for those opportunities, creating environments for change as well, a willingness to take risks as an organisation and, and willingness to empower teams at whatever level of the organisation um, to, to lead and for change. Fantastic. And, um, well, Wendy, we, we spoke previously um, about this idea of, um, you know, academics and, and sort of pro professional support staff and, and whether there's that division. Um, what's your view on, you know, how well that partnership works, um, perhaps at a board level as well? Yeah. 
Um, it's, it's really interesting. I came to this conference in 2016 and um, talked about um, this radical decision that we'd made uh, to to put our CIO on the top team um, uh, as a strategic animal. And um, yesterday I was in the uh, VC uh, senior leadership um, lunchtime meeting and we took a straw poll uh, to see here we are in 2019 um, with all the things that are happening and still so few of those uh, CIOs who are really strategic animals were on the top team. And um, and that, to me, is really disappointing. Um, and it, it it's kind of created a, a sort of sense that um, technology is something that you instruct to do something as opposed to being able to illustrate the art of the possible um, and thinking about your business and your, your university in a very different way. And so that's one of the things that's that's quite disappointing that that, that sense of embracing um, the bridge between what faculty are really passionate about and how uh, professional services staff actually help to realise that and are very much active players as opposed to being outside the room waiting for the white smoke to go up of, um, and being passive mm-hmm. um, and made passive structurally through, through that team dynamic. I think it's really interesting. There's a lovely little... Um, uh, article from the Harvard Business uh, Review several years ago which talked about the corporation is at odds with the future. So it talks about the corporation, an institution, um, being structured and bounded and, and you know, all the things that we talked about yesterday that were kind of you know, curtailing or strangling innovation and how the future is really amorphous and unbounded. And therefore, how can uh, both faculty and professional staff come together to bring bits of the future in to their organisation and have a kind of learning mindset as opposed to these big kind of uh, institutional change programs which are, you know, take so long by the time you've got it signed off, it's completely out of date. So how can we become much more agile and much more uh, innovative, really, of bringing bits of the future in and trialling and testing and learning? Um, and I think that's the, the piece for me is uh, how do we bring those, uh, the talent of our organisation together irrespective of what label we're wearing for the, for the good of the, the organisation, really. So that's uh, very interesting. I'd love to come back to the point about bringing outside expertise in. Um, In terms of that sort of process and structure, um, Debbie, perhaps you can talk about your experience, because I know, you know, we we talked um, before the event about, you know, whether this sort of delivery of change, um, you know, some universities go around about it in a a sort of centralised manner and some more localised in their team. So could you share your experience at Bournemouth University? Yes, at Bournemouth we've got, like a lot of other universities, a huge building programme, a huge investment programme. We procured a new VLE. And um, what we started off with was doing um, one of the Changing the Learning Landscape um, scoping pieces with Advance HE, JISC, ALT, National Union of Students and the Leadership Foundation. And then we sort of drew in a lot of stakeholders to influence the next steps and we tend to use the new buildings, the new VLE, as kind of catalysts for culture change. And I think it's getting the culture change piece in as part of the tech change and innovation that pulls together and operationalises those partnerships that that Wendy's just described. So, um, 
you know, we obviously you have to do your basic VLE training or whatever, but we actually invested in having academic learning designers on two-year posts coming and working with faculties to show the art of the possible, so mm-hmm. to really stretch and to show how you could engage, engage students in the classroom and to get that change, our central unit is academically led. And I think that makes quite a difference. I know there's different models in different universities, but at Bournemouth, to get the buy-in for the faculty-facing change, you have to have the academic leadership. And we work very, very closely on the committees with our professional colleagues. But to actually get that transformational change at student level, it really has to be, I think, a partnership model. Very interesting. I think um, if anyone's here and saw Stefan speaking yesterday, I'm not sure if he's here uh, today, but um, I think that was sort of a version of his role at the University of Southampton before he went to Carnegie Mellon. Um, So that's interesting. So that's sort of the centralised approach. Um, uh, Perhaps for Chris and Jane, um, you know, there's also the idea of, you know, if you're partnering, where you're choosing... Um, perhaps um, partners with, if you're talking about digital transformation or that kind of thing with the University of London you know you've got a huge uh, set of universities each with their own culture and values so then how do you um, create that sort of value while seeking to implement change perhaps and make the most of efficiencies across your university um, yeah, the University of London is um, very decentralised uh, each of the member institutions runs, um, runs their own affairs and I was at one of the member institutions at the start of my career and actually divorced uh, its systems (laughs) from the central university, so I've seen it from both sides. The the centralised services that we offer now are very much on the basis of uh, a service to all, and actually we have over 100 universities buying into our services, um, mainly virtual learning environment services. And it's very much on the Mm -hmm. basis of... uh, um, a thoughtful, understood um, uh, implementation of an environment that we're very familiar with to organisations that we're very familiar with. And the the organisations are buying into this um, because of that thoughtfulness and because of that sort of understanding. Um, But there is an economy of scale, there is uh, a critical mass component. Um, Can I come back to some of the the earlier questions, Sophie? Um, And one of the key things, I think, um, is about uh, to get um, change um, brought into across an organisation, it's a common understanding of what the the need is and the imperative. And often the leadership team have that understanding, but the rest of the organisation don't. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's that's core to all of this. And sometimes it's around uh, an outside influence, um, uh, additional regulation that you have to, to jump through, additional piece of information that you need to... To have, and sometimes it's about actually the the size, shape, and um, purpose of the organisation. And uh, you get those opportunities every sort of five or so years when you redefine the strategy um, and getting people to buy into that new vision. Are you going to sort of change the way um, you teach, um, um, like Northampton have, where they've actually built a whole campus where um, it's digitally enhanced from the get-go and the teaching rooms are of a size that aren't going to accommodate very large lectures because um, that's not seen as being the future and so forth. By getting the academic buy-in um, uh, for that is, is really important. And um, I don't think those things uh, um, happen very often. The other thing that I think we've got to make a distinction of um, in information technology 
are the administrative systems and the academic systems. I generally think mm. that um, academics could care less which HR system we've got and uh, how long it's... I mean, as long as they can book their leave, then that's fine. Um, the, uh, where it, the really touch points come is where the IT um, affects um, the academic life. Now, that might be around um, which um, um, research uh, systems that they use or it might be more commonly around the, the learning environment. And I think we've gone through that generational change of virtual learning environments and there was a really big sea change about 15 or so years ago when they were brought in. The next big threshold that I think we're going to have to um, um, sort of encounter with that academic interface in IT is around assessment. And I think that that is, the, and that's where artificial intelligence comes in and so forth. And I think we've got a really big... A challenge ahead uh, with getting academic buy-in to a more efficient, perhaps a more robust, um, perhaps a, a better quality um, uh, uh, um, assessment environment that's IT-driven. Because there's a really big culture issue there, and getting that culture change is going to be really significant. I think there was a, an organisation from the Nordics uh, here last year um, called peer grade where essentially students uh, mark each other's work so yeah. interesting to get some some academics along to see what they think about that um jane um from the outside as a partner um how do you help work with these universities to essentially uh assist with this very difficult issue of delivering change as a partner so is that about you know supporting staff and student digital capabilities or can you tell us a little bit about where you know, as Salesforce in higher ed, you would fit into this piece of the puzzle. Yeah, so um, very much like the rest of panelists here have talked about, I, I do believe fundamentally it is about a partnership. Mm -hmm. um, and that's very much our vision within the company, you know, that it's businesses, you know, that can very much be in partnership with industry to impacting, mm -hmm. you know, that we can be sharing and being that forum for collaboration and sharing the best practices. You know, and what our customers often tell us is that change will start often, and not surprisingly, within one area, one business unit, one division, and very much aligned, um, Chris, with what you were talking about with the larger term strategic goals of that institution, but it can be almost that decentralized you know side of the institution while the the top up and also driving from from the bottom down to, to influence change and having experienced this firsthand within higher education as I worked um, many years within recruitment and admissions you know that's where we started driving some of this change and being able to, to demonstrate this but I think that that very much the power of technology is being able to also leverage that data to, to lead with the analysis and to actually show change through the through the insights and how you're able to use that to make the strategic decisions for the institution and for the university and really continuing to put that student at the center. I mean, it's very easy for us to be talking about that bureaucracy, this mm -hmm. the staff and the administration and the tension and ties, but I think we sometimes miss that all of this is for the student and what do they need, you know, and how are we delivering a really personalized continuous proactive experience that's very much relevant to them and what their needs are and like we said already this morning we saw all these different models in place well how do you then customize those models you know how do you, how do you deliver that for your institution your students um, and I think also from a technology company, what we're starting to do is take much more responsibility. I mean, I appreciate the comments yesterday morning around, you know, technology and that we can be these big firms. But I think increasingly we are seeing it as our ownership to also 
deliver some of this to upskill institutions as well, whether that's through our own bespoke badges or modules that are complementary to help staff, to help institutions understand and to become more, you know, these embrace digital transformation more holistically. I mean, I think that's it's really interesting because it's, you know, I guess it's the, the question of if we're going to affect change beyond faculty level <laughs> on, only um, to more across the university culture, um, when's the point to bring outside expertise in? So I interviewed um, Jane Bunce, who's sat opposite me over there, um, and I remember, you know, with that, with that change management program about launching the new campus, there was, you know, we talked about the need to bring everyone and make sure everyone's on the same page. So, you know, do you need a, um, a comms team to help with that, to actually help with internal uh, communications? And then, um, Andrew, we had a, a conversation this morning about, you know, perhaps it's unfair to expect people to come up with, you know, these huge projects, mm. um, carry on with their day-to-day work, and then also project manage them. So you actually sort of outsource or have a have an inside team, sorry, to, to help we do, with the yes. project management. Um, we have a programme management mm. office, which is actually quite a large office now, which manages all the major programmes with the institution. Um, and that actually brings... All the people in that office are from business. They're bringing outside expertise into that. And so it's about <coughs> financial control, but it's also about task management. And that's really important in bringing diverse teams together across the institution. But underpinning it, you've got somebody that's managing that, keeping it on track and aligned to the institutional direction, the institutional policy. And actually the financial controls around that are re- really important. Um, it's a challenge for those people coming into an institution because they always say, oh, universities are really complex organisations and it is very hard to get an understanding of all the processes in the university. Once we're there, actually, it's really effective in being, being able to drive change, being quite agile. So we've had set up a number of subsidiaries which have done in a very short space of time, bringing that industry expertise in to be able to set up these subsidiaries. We've recently set up CU Online, uh, Commentary Online, operation and that was done really within about three months of bringing about 70 staff in to do the build around programs and by having that expertise it allows you to move very quickly can i ask how many people from universities here have a sort of program management team in the same way to actually you know keep on top of the tasks so we've got yeah okay so about probably a third of the room okay interesting um just pick up on that sophie that um I'm, i'm always really struck when we talk about you know, kind of organisational change. And I've got this in my slide deck when I do sort of work on transformation and stuff. It's like organisations don't change, people do. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm, I'm really struck at how long we kind of pour over specifications and take papers to boards and think about procurement and how little we, we think about the investment we need to make in our people yeah. to yeah. realise, you know, the, the benefits of this. And I'm also struck that... How, how much we're thinking about whether we make a decision or whether we invest mm. in this thing and how little we think about, you know, that if we don't, you know, not making a decision is making a decision to embrace the status quo. Um, and, you know, when you push back and say to people, OK, so we're not progressing with this, so you realise that we're embracing the status quo as fit for purpose, did you realise that's the decision you've just made? People go, oh, oh hang on a minute. And so I think, I think there's something quite fundamental about how we frame some of the discussions around change 
and how we think about our people as the the instruments really by which change happens and how little we invest in that and and then you get into this this blame culture that I think we saw a little bit yesterday of the word they as applies as apply to faculty and I could feel you know myself bristling a little bit and uh, and thinking you know they aren't the problem you know they are, are the why of your mm-hmm. institution and so therefore you know let, let's really think about that so I think there's something quite important about organizational change stop saying that talk about how people change how you invest in your people and how you know embracing the status quo is is a decision it's an active decision you've just made and so let's think about that as well no absolutely um i I think someone yesterday uh sort of said how talking about bristling um you know vc (laughs) came in from from the kind of business world and um you know it was absolutely abhorrent and it, it, it made me think of, you know, sometimes we criticise politicians for, like, not having any real-world experience. So, you know, is there room to kind of open up this idea of external expertise and that's perhaps slightly different to what we're traditionally used to in a, in a university and, you know, whether that's um, Board of Governors or whatever it is? But I just wondered if anyone has any strong opinions on, on that. I, th- I think so. I think that goes right up to the board level, yeah, in, in, in having that entrepreneurial mindset right up at the board level. It, it's got to be there, really, to effect change. And to what level is this about sort of digital capabilities? Because I, I actually qualified my first cha- question just to capabilities because actually there's, there's a whole other set of capabilities needed. But, you know, JISC have their sort of digital capabilities programme how much of this is happening at universities to actually make sure that everyone's you know, got these sort of digital leadership um, skills at their fingertips? Bournemouth, we've done a huge amount to start to have a look and to look at using the, dis- the digital tracker and then trying to use the outcomes of that to refine the way that we design our curriculum. And um, I think they're a really, really good set of tools and sometimes it's easier to bring expertise from outside into the institution and for it to have value, because sometimes the internal champions, you're just the internal person. So I think the partnership and the evidence bases are very, very significant. And then also linking with the current policy framework. You know, we had a, we've done a huge you know, like very many others, looking at the, our academic advisor role. And there was initially quite a bit of resistance to that. But when you actually talk in relation of the Office for Students and the metrics and the way in which that we're all measured, it's trying to put that in the wider context to explain why these changes are taking place. And I think the policy pieces internally are a huge part of the culture change model. Okay. If I may come in, I'll be brief. What I also see is a rise of not only the CIO, um, Debbie, which you were mentioning, Mm -hmm. and you were touching upon also the chief marketing officer, but now chief digital officer, right, for the entire platform. And now it's thinking about, well, how do all of these individuals integrate, right? And they're the ones who are often bringing in that outside perspective Mm -hmm. because they've driven these change programs at other institutions and and, uh, organizations. Schools are looking to them then to be able to bring this insights, and you're absolutely right. Sometimes they're seen as the outsider in and can drive this and can leverage models from, you know, it could be banks, you know, financial services, it could be healthcare, it could be other, you know, not-for-profit or areas and industries that are really interesting. 
So, Chris, I'll let you yeah. continue on that. No, I, I, I think there are all sorts of different externalities that um, an organisation uh, is, is uh, influenced by. I mean, you've got the, in the leadership team, you don't have to recruit from within the sector, you can recruit from out. Mm-hmm. Um, your governance, you certainly have to have um, a lot of external influence there. Um, and also you can buy in um, externality in terms of project management or um, consultancy or advice. What I would say across all of those, particularly around the governance, um, is that you have to have a range of things. And, and to focus on one particular skill is just, is just wrong. So you, know, you need to have people that are expert in law, expert in finance, expert in internationalisation. Um, alongside those with the digital. Mm-hmm. Everyone has to have awareness of each, each of those things, but you need the experts there too. And that's why you have the CIO at the table alongside um, the registrar responsible for regulation and so on, alongside um, the, the head of research. It's the complementarity of all of that. So we mustn't sort of just focus on digital. We've got to, I think, understand that it's a team. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, um, just to pick up on the governance uh, part, particularly university boards, I'm just very struck uh, how um, ill-equipped many university boards are. You know, for this uh, this kind of industrial revolution 4.0 and 5G and all of that, when they can't even download a board paper from a Google Docs uh, space. Um, and I just wanted to share um, a monumental fail of when we tried to um, have our students. Um, a mentor um, the board um, so each you know student was kind of paired up with a board member and uh, to show them how it was to be a student and to work across platforms and to, to assemble our own content and all of that and just how that monumentally failed as the board members tried to uh, kind of teach them things or, or show them take them out to dinner and stuff so I mean there was a real sense that they just, just did not have a window into the world of, of how students were learning and and therefore their their ability to to make decisions at a governance level about um, how the the business model of an institution was changing, mm-hmm. um, or, or be an academic uh, institution. You know, I think there's some real investment needed there to show uh, boards. You know, to to think through with boards how the governance you know needs to be strengthened mm-hmm. to embrace. I mean, uh, Andrew mentioned it. You know, earlier risk and their risk appetite for some of these spaces. Okay. Um, At that junction, I would love to uh, throw this open to questions from the floor. Um, So we have some, I think, on on Glissa. So if I go up a Kazam, something like that. There we go. Um, uh, To Coventry University, how did you get approval for the project management team? So um, I guess that's a wider point of, you know, any tips on actually getting some of these pieces going and, and through all the approval processes? It was a strategic um, decision um, to go with that to effect change rapidly and we have um, a, a set process really for presenting the business case uh, and putting that forward to the board. Um, I think one of the things that is the confidence um, to invest once you've made that decision it's the confidence to invest and go for it actually and be bold in the implementation of that um, and I think somebody else said you said about mm-hmm. not doing anything is yeah. yeah. actually once you decide to go for it then it's about investing properly and actually um, going for that change so I think we we have yes getting approval and procurement of you know can often take some time but we have quite an agile process where we can where the board gives that approval and then actually um, 
it's a confidence then to progress that. Okay, thank you. Um, another question. How do we measure value for money on the investment of the changes? So I suppose you've got you know, the administra- administration side and then teaching and learning, I suppose. How do we measure those? Does anyone want to take, uh, take that question? I'll just take one stab at um, mm-hmm. at it. It's not to give an answer, it's just to really uh, give another question. But we we talk about ROI, and I think we're, we really, really super focus on the I bit. And so it's, you know, whether it's 1.7, 1 million, or whether it's 1.714, you know. So, so we'll keep that going backwards and forwards, and so we'll talk about the investment piece. And I think we're pretty poor at the R bit, which is what is the return we're expecting. And one of the disciplines... That, that we saw from the PMO, so the project management office, was that it, it made us um, focus on benefits realisation. And so, you know, can you fully articulate the benefits that you wish to be realised? Do they align strategically? And so we got better and better at the R bit. And so I still think um, that in this kind of value for money, the return on investment, you know, what are you looking for? We're still pretty poor at the R bit uh, and the discipline that you need to articulate the R, your return. Uh, and we focus overly on the I bit. I'd I'd agree with that. Um, I I think uh, the business cases that come forward for the investment have to have that benefit. But I've also observed over the years that uh, because these system implementations take a while, circumstances change, and Mm -hmm. the benefits that you anticipate at the start are not necessarily those that you're able to realise at the end, and Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the capacity that you might have Mm -hmm. expected out of the system has been absorbed by other Mm -hmm. other requirements. Okay. Um, James, I, I, was say, I mean, I think, again, being the technology company, it is being able to lead with that data, right, and being able to show that impact. Again, if I just take an example of recruitment and admissions, I mean, it's very easy to measure the number of students who might now be following you on social or who are more engaged or how it's related to your applications increasing, assuming that's what your goals yeah. are for an institution. I mean, it's all going to depend on what you want to be delivering in lines with your strategic plans. And I, I certainly agree that on, the, on our side and being clear on what we're trying you want and being able to set that metrics up, but it should very much align with that longer-term vision and, and knowing that this is a journey, right, is, is the journey of change that you have to embrace upon, but being able to lead with those insights to be able to align that with strategic goals and having the data to prove it is valuable. Okay. Um, I was curious to know if the panelists had any other examples of either um, sort of successes in this idea of um, creating change beyond uh, you know, beyond pockets of innovation, and then either, or, or if you're more comfortable with it in, the, in that British way, um, failures as well. So um, we've had a few of, of both, but you know, if there are any more um, uh, lurking there, let's get them out in the open because we can all learn from them. I'm sure. I'll start, I'll start, I'll start you off then. Um, in terms of um, one of the the major concerns in the sector has always been the not invented here syndrome. Um, where you may have something that's perfectly adequate, it's really, really good, but you've got to spend ages kind of bespoking it and, and kind of really making it. So the not invented here syndrome for me is, is a major issue. Um, and um, I think working with a lot of businesses, um, you know, good enough um, and that sort of space. And then, you know, there may, there may be something where, you know, there's a white label and you put something over it. But, but I think we, we do so much of reinventing and duplication and there's so much waste in the not invented here syndrome. Well, it might be okay for so-and-so university, but I don't think you quite understand <laughs> us. And so that not invented That's here syndrome is a real issue, I think, yes, in some of these 
Yeah, to see the scaling. Even, I know, even I know department people talk department. about that in the um, school <laughs> sector as well, you know, yeah, the constant exactly. reinvention or downloading yeah, and tinkering yeah, of resources, which yeah, is, it, yeah. you can see it both ways because then it's sort of uh, making that your yeah. own. But, uh, yeah. yeah. I completely agree. Everybody's special. <laughs> everybody's, everybody's got to own no, exception. Special, and, uh, but. <laughs> you know, we can't possibly do that because we're special. Exactly. Yeah, Although I do think you face <laughs> that challenge because what our students want is wow. Yeah. And sometimes yes. when you yes. implement big systems across an institution, people think, oh, it's going to come down to the common denominator. Mm-hmm. And I never think when we're teaching there's that common denominator. I always think there's that potential for wow and anything mm-hmm. we should be doing should enable that to happen. You know, particularly because we're talking about we're talking about the research and teaching side today, not necessarily mm-hmm. the research mm-hmm. side. You know, we're very complex institutions, but students want well. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay, what mm-hmm. else do we have up there? Beyond the current forms of e-assessment, which changes do you expect uh, as technology changes? So we've talked a little bit about AI and how that mm-hmm. might have a knock-on with assessments. Um, any any others that you're kind of uh, <laughs> following on from my wow? <laughs> <laughs> I think if we actually look at the student experience and personalisation, mm-hmm. we're still personalising within the systems that mm-hmm. and the frameworks that we have in place. So you've got your semesters, you've got your assessment points. You know, if I'm going to go and get my mm. get my driving licence, for example, I can go into a test centre, pay my 30 quid, and I can do my exam any time I want. And then I can go and do something else. So I'm not trying to sort of say that we should look at assessment, which is very complex in such a simplistic way. But I do think there's something about the pace and enabling students to to learn and to be assessed and to move on and to have their priorities mm-hmm. um, perhaps more geared to the 21st century. I still think we're delivering a 20th century model. So I think, if I understand correctly, Coventry m- might be speaking a little bit about this idea of, uh, you know, can you know, will technology get to the point? I think there's someone here mm. from Deacon who who came across, but you know, where you can enrol any time, and we're not stuck in these uh, structures. But uh, that's right, and yeah. yeah, the ability. I mean, Deacon do that; they have enrol any time. Yeah. Um, we have subsidiaries that recruit six times a year. You can start six, mm. at six points a year. We have on the main campus three points a year, so um, I think that will come. I, I, I agree with Chris, actually. I think the biggest challenge will be assessment for us. I think we're still... Uh, I think if you look at satisfaction with assessment, it's still the lowest performing area of universities. I think I agree. That we're still in the kind of, you know, um, last century, really, with, with assessment, and I think that's the biggest challenge. I don't think the tools there are yet there to allow us to assess um, efficiently. I think it's the staff mindset, it's isn't the, it's there? The mindset. It's, it's the, the whole, mindset. It's the we thing. completely changed our assessments yeah. and feedback policy to enable doing things with you know, Google Cardboard, with technology, with personalised tech. There's very few people have kind of stepped up and taken that opportunity yet, and yeah. that's one of the things we're working really hard to look at. I can give you a, a small anecdote from the University yeah. of London. Um, I think it was, um, I don't know, about 1880 um, or something uh, that the University of London started doing distance uh, learning. Um, and it took three months. Uh, the first set of exams were, I think, were in the Seychelles. 
Um, and uh, it took three months for the exam scripts to be shipped out to the Seychelles. It took three months for the exam scripts to be shipped back to the UK for marking, and then three months for the marks to go back to the candidates that had sat the exams. Um, and that model, whilst it has been speeded up by DHL and other things, is pretty much the same. Um, we've got over 100 examination centres around the world where students are sitting exams simultaneously. The logistics of that is an absolute nightmare particularly when you have some countries that we've just had recently in Sri Lanka uh, where there have been curfews about um, public uh, assembly and um, examinations have had to be cancelled and so uh, how do you manage that? So technology certainly has got a huge part to play in assessment but to bring it about to have students sit in front of a terminal and sit an exam and you can be assured that that is the student that actually registered and is not an imposter to ensure that those um, marks are then uh, assembled and uh, either printed or scanned back to the centre, which I think is probably the first start, um, um, or actually um, are, are sort of assembled back in the UK for marking the, the, the assessment of it um, as well. What role does the uh, does technology have in determining through artificial intelligence one essay against another? Mm -hmm. You can do it in terms of uh, multiple choice, very straightforward. You can do it with very some simple okay. questions, but how do you mark an essay? Um, and also, I think, um, how can you reassure um, the quality to your trustees, to your organisation, uh, and your, the status of your institution relies on that quality mark. And we've seen how some institutions have failed, con uh, like the University of Wales, failed because it lost control of its quality. Yeah. So um, this goes right to the heart of what a university is. And digi uh, the, the digital world has a huge part to play in this particular part of the university um, uh, process. Um, there are huge um, advantages in using um, IT in it, but there are also huge risks. And, and that's why I think it's the biggest challenge coming up. Thank you. Yeah, we've got a session on blockchain later, so that bit about identity. Mm -hmm. Perhaps yeah. we, can, uh, we can have a good debate around that as well. Um, last few minutes. So this is a good one. Could anyone please comment on overcoming challenges related to legacy tech and legacy thinking? <laughs> yes, that's the thing. And I'm, I'm sure everyone in this room, you know, that's the thing, isn't it? They, they go into these meetings really optimistic, really hopeful, have worked on these business cases, and perhaps go home at night thinking, you know, that didn't go as I wanted. And it's a kind of, um, you know, it's, it's kind of how, how to, to manage this, this thing. I, if I put it another way, are there certain terms which sort of create, you know, this absolute sense of horror in some of the meetings you've got? So I used to work in a book publishers and it was before Kindle and someone mentioned a blog and the publisher nearly spat his tea out. <laughs> and it was like now that just seems like so ludicrous. So... You know, when's enough enough? Is it okay for people to say, oh, I don't do tech? Or, you know, how do we sort of bring those teams either with us or, you know, when's enough enough? <laughs> it's never enough, is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, 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 it's, it, this is a, uh, an iterative world. Where, where there's no end point. Mm -hmm. um, you're evolving the whole time and, and, and the digital world is evolving, humans' interaction with the digital world is evolving. I was struck by something I, I learned earlier, that we're, the, the UK is the first uh, uh, country to create a, a UK data ethics board, and I think that that is a very mm. big um, a, a evolution, because technology is impacting our lives 
and um, we've got to remember that humans are in control of this, not. Uh, mm. not, not I didn't it. agree with the point yesterday that we might want Sheryl Sandberg as a teacher. <laughs> 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 no, this is not a good idea. But no, I think we evolve, and I don't think there's an end point. It's just a continual evolution. Um, I'm quite struck, though, that I mean, most things are kind of a, the bell-shaped curve, aren't they? So you've got the early adopters, and then you've got like the you know the your solid citizens, and then you've got some laggards, and and um, and I think with within. Um, higher education in particular, I, I think we haven't yet got the construct around <coughs> learning being a team sport. So what, so what you might get from your rock star professor and talking about the thing that is so passionate and they are leading expert and how that you know, primes you to be really excited and then how you might then go and search and work with a learning technologist uh, to assemble content and how you might work with a librarian. And, you know, so, so actually thinking about our organisations, not that you've got to turn every single mm. faculty member um, into this digital kind of native. You, you're not going to do that. That's not where you should be setting your goals. It's to think about how do we enable the, the student who's at the heart of this to make best, mm-hmm. um, you know, in terms of their own learning by accessing lots of different resources. Mm-hmm. And so you might you may have fewer um, of you know, a particular staff group and more of different kinds of... of so it becomes a, a team sport. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that's, for me, a better model than thinking that everyone's got to be you know, this digital kind of wow. Yeah, yeah, okay. I believe it's, it is going back to the beginning, right? And how do we drive and how do you all drive this culture change within the institution and also starting to think as, like you were saying, Wendy, in partnerships, but not so much in silos. And again, not thinking of data, you know, being owned in specific departments, but more creating this culture of stewardship of data more holistically, which helps, you know, drive some of this change. Um, and like you said, some of this is, you know, we have millennials now within these institutions and they're embracing this already so I think using them and harnessing them for this innovative thinking is, is really valuable but it does take time yeah. um, and you know it's not going to happen overnight but I think that that you know being able to embrace that and bring people along the journey like we've all been talking you, about. You and I valuable. were speaking about this yesterday you know you might have a Gen Z student and yeah. we had the we had the um, uh, the student uh, yesterday Kath mm-hmm. talking about you know being at Cambridge Electra for maths, yeah. sort of, you know, very much um, a shoegazer, as it were. Um, and, you know, maybe if that's this, you know, the subject expert, maybe that's fine, but maybe you have someone additional who's exactly. really good at communicating those, uh, those ideas. Yeah. They work together. So yeah. I think yeah. on that note, uh, I hate to get the last, last word in. Um, we have reached time. So please let's give a, a big round of applause to our panelists. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening in everyone We're now up to 30 reviews on iTunes So why not help us reach 50 By leaving your rate and review today If you're interested in adult education Or corporate training And you're based in the UK Why not come along to the launch of our new podcast series The Voctec Podcast In Brixton in London On the 18th of September A few days later, the EdTech podcast will be recording live at Dare to Learn in Finland on the 20th of September, where I'll also be judging the Scandinavian entries for the Global EdTech Startup Awards. If you can't wait that long and you're back in the UK, check out the Association for Learning Technologies event on the 3rd to the 5th of September. And Didact India and the World Futures Forum take place from the 24th of September with our planning for reimagine education in London in early December also shaping up. For all events, go to the edtechpodcast.com forward slash events 
and get in touch if there are others we should add to our calendar. We're meant to be on a summer break, but we couldn't resist popping up a few bonus episodes before we kick off again in September. Until then, goodbye and have a wonderful week. Bye-bye.